Welcome to The Carlina Show. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin. Today on the show, we have Melissa Stone. Melissa is a police social worker with Bloomington, Indiana's Police Department. Today on the show, Melissa and I discuss why her department created this new program, the types of calls she responds to, how she interacts with people in crisis, her unique role growing up in a working-class home, her decision to become a social worker, and advice she gives other police departments considering a police social worker program. If you enjoy this episode, you may like previous episodes where I interviewed a first responder, a funeral director, a forest ranger, a working dog trainer, and many other guests with hands-on or misunderstood professions that help shed light on the human experience. If you would like to support this podcast, tell your friends about it or leave a review. Now I bring you Melissa Stone. I grew up in very rural Indiana, so I had never even really seen a social worker. I just thought I was going to be a teacher mm-hmm. until I took a psychology class in high school, and I loved psychology. And that teacher said, well, if you want to work with people and help people in that way, you, are, you should go to school, to college, and major in psychology. So I majored in psychology, and I knew I would have to go to grad school. And at that time, I had to choose between a counseling program and a social work program and decided that what I was missing in psych, things like that, were the bigger picture, the macro, the policy things. Mm -hmm. And I knew I would get that along with the one-on-one, how you counsel and how you run groups. Mm -hmm. I would get both of those things with social work, so I got my master's in social work. Okay. And did you have some time in between your bachelor's and your master's, or did you go straight into your master's degree? I went straight in. Okay. Okay. And then um, before you worked with um, with the Bloomington Police Department, what type of work did you do? Yeah. So I started working with adults with serious mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, major depression, with sometimes with psychotic features. Way back in my undergrad, while I was um, doing my bachelor's in psych, I worked in group homes. So I would help provide daily living skills for people with those serious mental illnesses. And I worked in, once I got my bachelor's, so while I was in grad school, I did home-based case management with the same population, all typically with adults. I don't have tons of experience with kids. Um, but then I spent some time after graduation for my master's in higher ed, so doing some academic advising and some disability support services. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most recently I was working before Bloomington Police, I was working with students who had experienced sexual violence on a college campus. So what type of work did you, or what did your work look like um, there? Yeah, so I was a confidential victim advocate, and it was at, I live in Bloomington, Indiana. We have Indiana University, Mm -hmm. the flagship college here. And so there are a ton of students, 45, 60, something like that, um, just undergrad. Mm -hmm. And 
I was a confidential victim advocate. So people would come if they had experienced some sort of sexual violence. So that could be sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, anything that falls under that purview. And they could come to us and we would help them within the university to, one, receive Title IX accommodations that are required mm-hmm. um, for students who experience that. So talk to teachers, make sure that they can still get all their work done, their grades don't suffer, and things like that. And also help them through any kind of reporting process, whether that was through the university and or through the actual criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And we could go with them to hearings and meetings with attorneys and things like that, so they just felt like they had somebody here. Because so many of the students here in Bloomington aren't from Bloomington, mm-hmm. so it's not like their parents could come in for every individual meeting they had. So we got to support them in that way, too. Okay. And you mentioned that you come from a rural part of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Is that true, would you say, for your colleagues uh, who went to school for both their bachelor's and their master's of social work? Were they from rural areas as well? I would say for my undergrads. I went to Indiana University here in Bloomington for my undergrad, and there are people from rural areas, but it's a lot of people from the East Coast and from Chicago and things like that, too. So really, I didn't feel like I was surrounded by people who were from rural areas here in Bloomington, but I went to more of a regional school, University of Southern Indiana, for my master's, and a lot of those people were from the Evansville, like, Southern Indiana area, mm-hmm. where they were a little more rural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just asked, because um, I, I come from a rural area as well, and so when I went to college for my bachelor's, um, it was the same thing. There were a lot of people from the East Coast and from the city, and so I kind of felt like a fish out of water. So did you sort of feel like that with um, in, in the program? Did you kind of feel... Um, a little bit different because you come from a different type of background? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm also a first-generation college student, so I really felt like I had no idea what I was doing, Uh (laughs) and I felt like so many people around me did. And honestly, I I could get on a pedestal about, like, rural resources and education Uh and things like that um, and how I just feel like I didn't even know social work was a thing and, you know, just basic things that happen Uh when you come from a rural area. Um, And, yeah, leaving that hometown for a bigger college was terrifying, but it was definitely the right thing to do because I was exposed to things I literally had never seen before. Yeah. What What did your parents do, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, so my mom worked in a factory, a Ford factory, and my dad does excavation and, like, outside construction-type work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom has a high, had a high school degree. My dad never finished high school. Yeah. Wow. I, you and I have a lot in common. My dad drives a tractor trailer, so and he still does in his 60s, and my mom stayed um, at home and, and took care of us. And um, so it's uh, it's very rare that I meet somebody who has a, a similar upbringing like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and how do you think that kind of um, 
growing up um, like that, how do you think that influenced the type of work that you're doing now? Do you think it makes you more empathetic or compassionate or does it have an influence? I absolutely think it does have an influence and I can't even explain where it came from, but I remember in my little town because it was so little, you know, you have the families and the last names that are well known and our family was not a name that was well known or well liked or popular or any of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you can see in those type of small areas that there, there's different treatment, unfortunately, for people who have a lot of money and things like that. And I was very aware of that from a very young age. And I spent a lot of my time being like, well, you know what? It doesn't, it shouldn't matter who, how much money somebody has, they should still be getting opportunities to things. And I don't think that that's a fair thing that other people get opportunities just because of who they are and things like that. So I think that definitely plays a huge role in how I advocate for people Mm -hmm. um, and how social work is a perfect fit because it is all about rooting for the underdogs and the people who are under-resourced. And I can, I know that it goes way back to those days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, how about we jump into your, your current role. And, um, so this, you are the first person to be in this role at the, um, at the police department. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. (laughs) And so why, why did they decide why did the police department decide that they needed someone um, like you to fulfill the role of the police social worker? Yeah, so and it, the whole conversation started a year and a year and a half before they um, eventually hired me. But the police chief and the police chief was seeing calls, so many calls that came in that were mental health related or people who were lonely or needed basic things and really wanted a different approach to how to deal with those calls instead of sending a police officer out there to kind of keep them open up for things that police officers are trained to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked with the mayor and the mayor was absolutely for putting together a proposal and some money um, to bring in a social worker to help decrease the call volume. Mm-hmm. So they worked together to make this position part of the budget, which is pretty unheard of without a trial first of some sort of grant. Mm-hmm. So I'm not grant funded. I am in the budget for the city, for the police department, and it's important to them to take a different approach with people. Mm -hmm. and just offer services that are really needed in some of these calls. A lot of the calls we get are not um, all just things that that police are Mm -hmm. trained to deal with, right? So So give me some examples of the calls that you've been on, the ones that, that stick with you. Yeah, sure. So I spend time being called out. I spend less time being called out than going out on my own, but when I am called out, it's often for somebody experiencing suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's teenagers, sometimes it's adults. 
more teenagers than I expected, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, but I go out there, kind of do an assessment and try to figure out if they need to go to a hospital or like, do they have a plan for this or are they just upset and they're saying that um, and don't know how else to talk about what they're feeling. So I kind of go out there and do an assessment. And another type of call that I get called out to at times would be uh, domestic violence situations after the police have secured the scene and made sure that it's safe. Mm -hmm. So at times I go out, even today actually, they called me out to this couple who tend to call in quite often saying, oh, my husband's saying this about me and threatening me. So they called me out there and there was no physical, anything physical going on. But what I could quickly see is that the two of them know how to rile each other up. And we talked about, hey, what's a better way to deal with your anger in the moment than calling the police department? Mm -hmm. And what are the basic things that are happening that set you off? And what are some things? It was like marriage counseling, brief marriage counseling mm -hmm. 101. Um, so those types of calls that go out to as well. And then the other thing that I feel like I've been really surprised about is the amount of elderly and aging mm -hmm. referrals that I get. So sometimes I'm called out or sometimes I follow up with them, but you know, maybe somebody calls in saying they haven't seen their neighbor in a few days. So the officers will go out, check and make sure the person is still alive. And if they are, um, and it appears that they're not doing well, they'll call me in and say, hey, can you see what we can do to help this person? Other times, it seems to be common that people who are starting to kind of go down the path of dementia will feel like they are hearing things. So maybe somebody knocking on their window, they think somebody's knocking on their door, mm -hmm. they think there's a car outside honking at them all the time, or something like that. Um, but police go out there and they realize there's nothing there. There aren't people doing that. Um, so then it's a process of making sure they have home health care if they need it. Or maybe, unfortunately, it's time to look into adult protective services or it's time to, is it time to go to a nursing home now? Maybe they can't really live on their own anymore. Mm -hmm. And those are some really hard cases. And I know it's great, like, the best case scenario for sometimes these people to leave their apartments or their homes and go to a nursing home, but it is extremely heartbreaking. And that's just not something I expected mm -hmm. in this role. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not my experience. Aging and elderly has never been my experience, mm -hmm. but I'm, gr I'm growing to really love that population. So it's working out. Yeah. Um, and do you find that you that the resources are available for the people um, who need them, say the, the aging and elderly, if they need uh, home health care or if they need to go into a facility, is that available to them? So I think, honestly, that there are not enough resources 
for that population in general. Mm-hmm. We have a really great, it's called Area 10 Agency on Aging, and every like community in Indiana has one. I'm not sure if that's national or not. Um, but we have one, and they are the main slash only source, and they are amazing. I'm on the phone with them numerous times a week, mm-hmm. but they are the only agency that does what they do. Mm-hmm. So it's they have huge caseloads, and they do a really good job, but I, I know that there needs to be more. And when it comes to, like, transportation, how do we get people from one place to another? when they can't drive anymore. Bloomington City, we have a bus system, but that's not always the best for somebody who is elderly who has to walk to a bus stop, right? Um, And we have a couple of other things that they can use, but it's hit or miss. It's just not enough. And same with having food delivered. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a few places that do that, but again, if it's late on Friday night, and I get a call sometimes from people that are like, where do we get food for somebody? I, there aren't many options. Mm-hmm. Um, same with like on the weekends, that can be a hard thing too. So especially for the aging and elderly population, I'm seeing so many gaps. So I've been getting involved in, our city has like a commission on aging to address issues of aging. Mm-hmm. I've started to try to go to that and put out there what I see. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a very tough population. I don't think there's enough out there for them. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you do that a lot um, since you have this unique insight into um, some of the problems and issues that are going on, that you take that knowledge and bring it back to a committee or a commission and say, this is what I'm seeing, um, and try to find a way to solve the problems? Absolutely. I think a huge part of my role is going to these community collaborative meetings and being like, here, I see where the gaps are. Mm-hmm. Like, I see where people are falling through the cracks. What can we do about that? You know, what, how can, what are these processes? Explain to me how people are getting into psychiatrists and X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. because it's, it's not always working for people and I'm seeing them. The police department sees them when things aren't going well, right? Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time going to these meetings and doing that. And I find that to be super valuable and people find that valuable too. Mm -hmm. But what I have also seen is I kind of have this responsibility to kind of show people and tell people more about what police work is. Mm -hmm. And because people have a lot of opinions like, oh, well, every time we call the police, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, hold on. Like, (laughs) it's not just that, right? Like, there's a lot of things that go into this. So let's talk about what you're seeing. Like, I just talked with the school system. He said, well, sometimes we get frustrated because it takes officers X amount of time to get here when we call something in. And... What happened, what I think is happening, it's a dispatch thing. So officers get dispatched, right? So if people are calling in and they're saying, hey, we had this thing, the kids are separated, they're fine, but we need an officer, that's going to come dispatched as a lower priority Mm -hmm. than something that's active and in progress. So if there are active and in progress things, officers have to go to that first. Mm -hmm. And... The school system didn't realize that. They just thought every time they called the police, they somebody should show up in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Like no, that's not. That's actually not the way that things are 
that's not the way it works, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's building a lot of bridges too and kind of hopefully shaping and kind of taking away some of those myths and what people feel about police work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you had experience working with a police department or have you had, did you know um, police officers prior to working uh, in this job? So no, not police in general. I did an internship, well I did an internship in work release, so people who were on their way out of prison, and I did an internship in a prison, maximum security prison setting. So I have worked with a lot of correctional officers, Mm -hmm. um, but I've never actually worked with like pre, like what happens to get people into the criminal justice system. I already saw them once they were in prison or on their way out of prison. So, but one thing I do think about is when I was growing up when we were little, our next door neighbor was the police chief of our town and he was the greatest guy ever. He got us Christmas presents. He let us play in his backyard on all of his trees and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up like thinking highly of um, what police do because of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've always been interested in criminal justice. Yeah. Um, you'd mentioned um, some myths or misconceptions about uh, police, police departments in general. What do you, what do you think some of those myths and misconceptions are, and and what would you say about them? Yeah. So I think a lot of people think police officers aren't trained at all in mental health or how to deal with people in a non-mean way. Like I think people just assume all police are vi- not violent, but kind of macho and um, like to run the show and things like that. But I've been so impressed, at least with our police department, we do so much training on de-escalation, on mental illness, and how can we diffuse situations instead of escalating them into things that lead to arrests. Mm -hmm. And I just think people don't know the effort that's put in to Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I also think people don't really understand what people, what officers do on a daily basis. And even I, I guess I've been surprised by that. So mm-hmm. give me uh, some examples. Yeah. So I see this screen every day of all the calls that officers are on. Right. And I, of course, know that police are called to deaths, right? If somebody calls in and they're like, I haven't seen my neighbor, and okay, well, it turns out that that neighbor had died at some point. But I, there are days where there are, like, numerous deaths every day. Mm-hmm. And not bad, like, natural causes and things like that. But people, our officers are seeing things way more consistently than I thought that really affect them and their own mental health and what they do every day. And it's not an easy job. And I guess I just didn't expect that. And the number of calls out there, I mean, I feel like we pass officers a lot when we're just driving around. We don't necessarily see them constantly responding to things, but there really are calls all day, all the time. Um, They're just going from one to another, and it's just it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. When they go, when someone reports someone missing, 
what does that look like for the officer? Do they have to break into the house? And I mean, can you kind of describe what that experience is like for the officer? Yeah, to the extent that I know how their policies and procedures go, I'm not like completely 100% sure on mm-hmm. when they're allowed to break in and things like that. Yeah. But what they try to do is first, dispatch will call the local hospitals and the jail. Anytime there's a missing, somebody calls in worried about somebody mm-hmm. just to make sure they're not in those locations. Mm-hmm. So that's done. Okay, well then they show up on the house, they knock on the door, a lot of times people will just answer the door. Um, I don't know if they're the other, the people who called in didn't try or maybe there's an issue and they just didn't want to talk to them or who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't get an answer, then they are going to start, maybe they're going to start calling next of kin. Oh, we see in our little system here that this person has a daughter. We're going to call the daughter and things like that. Mm-hmm. And if they live in an apartment, it's possible that we'll have somebody from the management come out and unlock the door so we can they can go in. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they do need to make some sort of contact with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes that does result into having to get into houses or break into houses. But most of the time, it doesn't mm-hmm. go down to that, honestly. Yeah, I just wondered how, how that process worked. Um, yeah. And, and that is a lot for an officer to, to have to deal with, um, to see that much death and injury and, and all. How, how do they cope with that? Well, so that's something I've been trying to work on here in the department. So there is a nationwide awareness starting that our police officers need more help. Our first responders need more help in this area because the culture is such that, hey, we're on this scene, but then you have to go to the next one and you have to be ready for the next one. Mm -hmm. There's not always a break in between that. So the best thing that they can do is try to just kind of pack it away somehow. And if you keep packing away and packing away and packing away, eventually it adds up. Um, we have some officers who are better at talking about those things than others. We have some officers who, are, you know, they kind of become a really close family, and I, some of them really bond and are able to talk to each other about that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them really will say that there's not enough being done. Mm-hmm. So we are looking into programs like critical incident stress debriefings, right? So what happens after these major events? a major shooting or an infant death. Like, I think all these people should be getting together and debriefing from those types of events. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research out there that supports those types of programs. And then there are some peer-to-peer programs out there. So one thing about first responders is somebody who's not been a first responder, they don't always trust. There's a lot of mistrust of the outside. Mm-hmm. And that includes me, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit mm-hmm. later on. Um, but, okay, if that's the case, then let's work on these peer programs. So peers are people who have been through things, who are who have been officers for a while, but who are the really friendly kind that people really relate to. Mm-hmm. So can we, if somebody's struggling, get them connected to one of these trained peers 
and so they can have conversations about what's happening. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of push going right now for improving that type of that mental health care, mm -hmm. and our department's been working on that before I got here, but definitely I've been adding to the fuel to the fire on that one because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, following up on what you just said about, um, you know, being accepted into the, you know, the police department as a social worker, has that been an easy transition? Is, is there trust? Yeah. So when I, so my background was correctional officers and I did make, when I was doing internships, you know, I broke the seal with some of those correctional officers and really had some good relationships going. But when I was starting at the police department, I kind of came in being like, all right, just assume that everybody is not going to like what you're doing and you're just going to have to woo them all. Um, but I have been so fortunate because it has not been that way. Um, if I do, and I mean, there is some pushback. I mean, there's a few people who I feel like I struggle with on a daily basis who really kind of affect what I do or what I'm able to do because of their beliefs about social work, mm -hmm. AKA people who have not been first responders anymore mm -hmm. or before. <clears throat> However, most of that, I don't have active pushback. So the second shift people here are usually the youngest ones, and they're even quite a bit younger than me. And, you know, they're growing up in a culture where it's more common to talk about mental illness and mental health and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they use me all the time. Like, they like me around. They're super nice. The, the group I have more trouble with would be the people who are quite a bit older or almost finished with their police career. Mm -hmm. So there are people who have spent most of their career being like, well, we sucked it up and we got through it. And that's just what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And that's been a little more difficult, but a little more challenging. And I think with them, it's been more, I just have to prove what I'm doing is working. And I've had a few cases that I, I feel like I've been very successful in and that some of the older people have been involved with. So I'm starting to see the tide turn mm -hmm. uh, for some of those even more difficult people after about a year. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but really overall, I've been very fortunate and the department's very supportive of what I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you said that you had training in hostage negotiation? Yeah, so that's one cool thing. So the person who runs the negotiations team here, he is a lieutenant, and he is very pro-social worker and mental health and all the things. Mm -hmm. So he's been one of my number one fans since I started. And he, of course, knows all the research into negotiations, and there are a lot of negotiations teams out there to bring in a mental health professional from like a community mental health agency or something. Mm -hmm. So there are very few that have an actual social worker on staff. And he was really excited about that opportunity. So we don't have tons of call out, call out here, which I know is technically good, but selfishly I'm like, <laughs> I don't be a part of it. Um, 
but I do get to go to training with them and we, the other officers who are negotiators, and they almost just feel like social workers too, which is great, but you know, we do scenarios, we talk about active listening skills and how do you approach somebody to de-escalate them, because ideally you want that crisis to end up with somebody coming out and nobody getting hurt, mm -hmm. so how do you do that? Um, so I'm really excited. They're about to send me to like an actual nego hostage negotiation school, oh. which I think will be really awesome as well. So lots of fun. Thank yeah. You. So give me like hostage negotiation 101. Like, um, give me an example of, of how you would use it. Yeah. So I've not been on an actual call out yet because we don't have that many of them, but right. what it looks like is. We're, we would go out as a team. There's about six, seven of us, maybe. Um, but we go out on a team. And because I'm not an actual officer, I will never get to be the person who actually talks with the subject. Mm -hmm. However, I'm there as a consulting role. So I would listen to the conversation happening between the officers and the subject. I would make some assessments you know, lethality, um, what kind of mental illness am I seeing? But also, I have a lot of connections with the community mental health agencies here and things like that, so I can get some intel on those people as well. You know, mm -hmm. oh, are you seeing somebody at, do you get meds somewhere? Like, I can do some of that background work as well that can really help the team. Mm -hmm. And also, like, when we do scenarios, I've seen where, I can say, oh, you know what, I think I would have taken this train of thought a little bit farther. Or maybe you could have asked this question in this way. And they're super receptive to that. But the whole goal is just to do the, the basic active listening skills, right? Like letting somebody tell, tell their story and let them know that you're listening to them. Mm -hmm. and eventually, people tend to start calming down when they feel heard. It's just the basics that people want to be heard. And everybody has the ability to learn those active listening skills. Yeah, yeah. So you said that you um, work in the homeless camps as well, or you go out and help work with people in the homeless camps. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. So this is one of my, one part of my job that is all proactive, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I go out with our downtown resource officers um, who are specially, they're a specially designed team in the police department. They are officers, but they are designed to be officers who go out to work with the homeless population because we have a high population of homeless people here in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. um, so I go out with an officer, and we also go out with Centerstone, which is our community mental health agency here. Mm -hmm. And we just, we go out to camps that we know, and check in on people. We built rapport with them at this point. So we walk up there, check, let, us, let them know that we're there and see what they need, make sure that they are on housing lists and um, make sure that they have their assessments done to get on the housing list mm -hmm. and all of those basic things that they need. Uh, sometimes that includes working with our local humane association to take food out um, for pets that they have, mm -hmm. um, which has been a really great partnership. And sometimes it's, oh, here's a couple bottles of water and just building those relationships. Mm -hmm. So when it's time and they're ready to 
move into an apartment or something, they already feel supported. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it is going out and just making sure that they are, they have access to resources. They know where they are. You know, do you know where the community kitchens are? Do you know where you could sleep in a shelter at night if it got too cold? And just making sure they know those things while they wait. Because we have a huge, like I said, a huge homeless population here, and we don't have the supportive housing to house everybody. Mm-hmm. So there are wait lists. And while people are waiting, you know, to shelter or they camp, um, and we're just trying to get them through until it's their turn to mm-hmm. get something. Right, right. Um, so looking back over the past year, um, what are, tell me maybe a couple stories that stick out with you, that stick with you, that you still think about. Yeah, sure. So I was working with a lady who was, well, she is Spanish speaking. Um, and it was kind of funny because she won't talk to officers in anything but Spanish, but the first time I met her, she spoke perfect English to me, <laughs> and I think that just kind of goes to show that there's still a lot of, even with community members, right, like fear of police and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out she is in the immigration process, but she's here without any papers right now. Mm-hmm. He's undocumented. So she also has a mental illness and she has bipolar disorder and that includes mania so she if she's not taking her med medications as she should she will go days and days without sleep and she'll go around and just do things like get into people's mailboxes or go to the grocery store and dance around and just do things that are obviously not good for her mm-hmm. um but she also had some major issues with her family because her family, culturally, they don't, they don't from a Hispanic, a general, I guess, stereotypical Hispanic family, they don't talk about mental illness much. Mm-hmm. And they don't even like to acknowledge that mental illness exists. And this daughter, clearly adult daughter, but she has mental illness and they don't know how to deal with that. Um, so it was some education of the family. It was some uh, discussion between the family and her. And we were able to, one, get her hospitalized for a little while, which was really important, and get her back on her medication. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to help her connect with some places in the community. For the last couple of months, I haven't even, I checked in on her a couple of times, and she'll check in with me if something good has happened. but. I don't even talk to her anymore on the regular because she doesn't need me anymore. And she's volunteering in the community. That's been, that was a really great story for us. Another one I think of clearly, he was calling, oh, calling the department probably like six times a day. Um, He would say that he was suicidal. When you got there, he's like, no, I'm not really. I just want to talk to somebody. And... He was somebody else who had stopped taking his medication and had just such a severe anxiety disorder that kind of some obsessive compulsive disorder that I have never seen on that scale before. But he wouldn't leave his apartment for fear of uh, 
contamination, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't do all kinds of things. He wouldn't shower. He wouldn't do anything. So he was just afraid of these of contamination and things like that. And finally, I went to the took him to the communal community mental health center for an intake, and that was kind of a two two and a half hour process mm-hmm. because it took him a long time to get out the door and feel okay that the door was locked. Even if I was showing him, look, I can't get in. He had a lot of trouble acknowledging that it was locked. And just getting him in was quite the show. Um, but, and then I was, and you know, sometimes it just, it can be frustrating, but I had to stay on the mental health center here. And I would check in with people double, like twice a week or so and say, hey, does he have a case manager yet? Hey, does he have somebody yet? Mm-hmm. He really needs somebody. He cannot get through his daily life. And he is calling us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally got him on a team there, somebody who comes out to his house every day or he takes meds there every day on site and somebody's in contact with him every day. Mm-hmm. And I I went from having to talk to him like 30 times a week to zero. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't call in anymore. He is set with the community mental health agency. And that's kind of the goal for me, right? So I'm not supposed to have an ongoing active caseload. Mm-hmm. You know, I provide I brought, I provide grief therapy, and I can do interim therapy and we, until we can get him into somewhere. But ideally, I'm not going to be their therapist for the next two or three years while they're working through their what, right. what they're going on. Mm-hmm. So I got them connected to the people who do great things already, and now he's not even on the radar anymore, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So are there other programs like yours uh, across the country? Yeah, so there there are a lot of different setups. So there are more setups where police departments partner with community mental health agencies and let their mental health professionals go out with officers mm-hmm. who are not being paid. They're not paid by the city. They're not paid by the county. They're not paid by a police department. They're paid by the mental health center, mm-hmm. uh, but they go out at times with officers. Mm-hmm. And that's the most common. Um, there are, of course, now, like me, somebody fully employed by a police department. The interesting thing is there even if we are employed by police departments, we're not all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do I find somebody who works in the police department who does exactly, like, well, pretty much even what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's somebody else um, actually in Indiana, but she works most of her time in the school system, and that's not even on my radar. Like, I don't, I mean, I work with the school system on a couple projects, mm-hmm. but I'm never in the school system doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of places who have social workers who only do domestic violence and sexual assault because those numbers are so high in those areas. Um, that's also not only what I do. It's some of what I do, but it's not all. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting because we all just do such different things. You're really just creating the program that best fits the area that you're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have people from across the country reaching out to you that are interested in replicating your program at a police apartment? Yeah, I have. Well, I get a lot of people who are interested in what I do and how they could start a program. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, 
a lot of the a lot of the people who reach out to me are like, what kind of grants do you have? And I'm like, I'm so fortunate. I don't have to have grant funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard for me to know how to tell them how to start with that um, because I don't have to do that part of it. Um, but there are definitely people out there who are interested. And then maybe people who are just hired. So um, Northern Indiana, they just hired some a social worker, the first of what will be four, I think she said, for a county up north and she called me on her like first or second day and said what are you doing down there help me out right Mm -hmm. um and it's been super interesting to kind of relay what i'm doing to people um but again it'll be so different how she implemented up in northern Indiana and how they might implement it out in Colorado. I think that was somebody once. And somebody from Florida called me once. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there are people, and there are lots and lots of students out there, social work students who want to do what I do. I get so many requests to talk to students. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels good, you know, and I, I do think it's a, an important part of my job to help people in those who are beginning programs and also help those students out there who want to do what I do. So it's it's a fun feeling, but sometimes it's like overwhelming. I don't know. It's kind of overwhelming to you. So since you've been in the position for, for one year now, um, how, how has it changed or how have your feelings towards the position changed or any change that you've noticed since you started? Yeah, sure. So the way that this program was kind of presented at first is that I was going to work mostly with our downtown resource officer team. But what I quickly realized is, like, so they are the ones who work with homelessness and things like that. What I quickly realized is that that team is very well connected. They are almost like social workers themselves. They do a fantastic job, and most of the time, they don't need extra help from me. So I've actually spent most of my time helping the general patrol people, so the people who are running from call to call all the time, who don't have 20 minutes all the time to just listen to somebody's story and things like that. So I'm doing a lot more of those types of calls. So it was kind of out there like, oh, she works uh, mostly with homeless the homelessness um, population, and I'm like, nope, not really. That's not quite what I do. I don't do a ton of that mm-hmm. at all, which has been kind of interesting to me, but it's just not what our department needs, and the department's been so flexible with me. They're just like, okay, like, whatever you think, is you you, you know what you're doing, and mm-hmm. they really treat me like a professional and um, let me try out new things, and I've been really enjoying that. Um, and again, the aging and elderly population is just not something I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are definitely things that I I want to do more of. So my back, you know, I just recently came from domestic domestic violence and sexual assault, and I don't get a ton of those referrals. And I want more of that. So mm-hmm. how can I work more of that into what I do? Mm-hmm. Um, same with uh, trauma, like traumatic events or death scenes. Like, how do I become part of that? And really, it's just, it wasn't what was pressing at the time, but I can see, because I see the screen every day, Mm -hmm. I can say, hey, this is a call that I think I should have been on. And I can kind of adapt the program 
now that I have, you know, my basic feet under me. And that's really exciting too. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you see for the future of, of this position and in, in your role in it? How do you see it changing? Yeah. What I would really, really love to see is, um, another one of me. <laughs> um, but mostly because I love doing the macro work, so the community work and the policies and what are we doing um, to fix the gaps, not just get people through them, but what are we doing to change that? And I really like the big picture stuff, and I would love if I had somebody else who could focus more on the one-on-one interactions with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing those both, and I wouldn't ever want to lose working one-on-one with people, mm-hmm. but somebody who just is more focused on that, so I have more um, time to do some of the big-picture things. Mm-hmm. I also uh, plan to see me involved in officer wellness programming. So what are we doing for our officers, right? So bringing that peer program here and kind of being a maybe a clinical director, so being somebody that they can come to if they have trouble, um, bringing this, the stress debriefing, um, bringing whatever it is to the department to make sure our officers are being treated, are getting what they need from all of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my, and then of course, like the more improve or increasing the domestic violence calls and the more trauma type scenes. I'm here, so maybe as a department, would it look better if we, if I reached out to people immediately or the, de- the next day or so mm-hmm. after a death and make just to check in with people. Most of the time, they're not going to need anything, but what would that say about a police department? That's really going to bring what people, change the minds of what people think about a police department, and I think that's important. And mm-hmm. uh, mending that community gap with what people think about police officers and um, try to, and you know, let people know that officers really are out there to help. They really are, and... Um, I think I can play a big role in that too. So yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. And what advice would you have for a young person who might be in high school and they're thinking about what they want to do, you know, as a career? Um, what advice would you have for someone who might be considering social work or um, some thoughts about who would make a good social worker? Yeah. So. One thing I always tell students is if you have an internship or if you have a, an opportunity to volunteer somewhere, do it and try using those experiences to try things that are way out of your comfort zone. So I knew I was interested in criminal justice, but when I was like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to try a prison. If I don't like it, at least it's only for four months. But it changed my whole trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that people try things that they didn't expect. Like, oh, yeah, I love working with kids or whatever. Um, okay, well, great. You already know you like kids. Well, then try something else because you just never know, right? And I think what it, what it takes to be a good social worker is being willing to be super flexible, to be able to adapt to all kinds of different scenarios, being able to work with people who are very different from you and might believe things that are different. Um, and also 
kind of realizing you're going into a field where it's crisis after crisis and fire, putting out this fire and putting out that fire with definitely some positive reinforcement, but not a lot, right? You don't get thanked for doing your job and people come to you when they're not doing well. So it's just, um, it can be very emotionally draining and you have to be somebody who's good at setting boundaries, you know, knowing when it's okay to say no to responsibilities and no to clients sometimes even, you know, depending on the scenario. So mm-hmm. yeah. Qualities. Yeah. So what does your family think about the work that you do? <laughs> um, actually my, I have a twin oh. and she, um, yeah, she's the one who saw the listing for this job. Um, I was happy working with students at IU. I had no intention of leaving anytime soon, so I wasn't looking, and she happened to see the job pop up somewhere, I think on Facebook or something, and she sent it to me, and she said, you have to apply for this. (laughs) So she's always supportive, and she knows that the crisis work is what I really love to do and helping people in their very worst moments. And my husband is uh, pretty supportive of all that, too. I think sometimes... He he gets the raw end of the deal because I spend all day talking to people and dealing with crisis after crisis, and I would come home, and he's like, let's go out and do this, you know? And I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> I just don't want to have to be around people. Um, but I, you know, we we work through that. As Sometimes I know that that's burnout for me, and I'm, I don't have good boundaries because I should want to go out and still do stuff every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's a learning experience, but from what I do in general, he's supportive of that as well. I mean, as far as safety goes, I have a bulletproof vest, and officers, they tell me if if I shouldn't go somewhere by myself. I mean, they are very, I mean, safety is their number one thing, mm-hmm. so I don't find it any unsafe, any more unsafe than for, like, child welfare workers who go into people's homes with much less than what I do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, people are people are proud, and um, I think it's a good experience too for people who come from little rural areas to see that you can go out there and do big things, and I think that's important. Yeah. What about your parents? Uh, my mom's no longer alive, um, but my dad—he's just—he would be proud if I'm just if I were just doing anything I wanted to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so he's always been super supportive of us um, and all the things that we do, going to college and things like that. So he's easy to please, honestly. Um, he was he was worried when I did an internship at a prison. He was not too cool about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but he's, he's um, so supportive and is just so proud of all the things that we do. So it's... Yeah. It's a good feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Is your sister a social worker as well? She's not, actually. She is in public. Well, she's in public health. Oh, okay. She does, like, smoking cessation, and she does love to work with mental illness and populations like that because there's a high high smoking uh, population within mental illness populations Uh um, and things like that. So we relate over a lot of those types of things and making quality of life better for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she does public health. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or anything else you wanted to talk about? 
I don't think so. I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, Melissa, it's been a lot of fun talking to you and hearing about your work. And um, I'm really excited we got a chance to sit down and talk to each other. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Okay, well, cool. Well, we'll be in touch then. You take care. Okay, great. Thanks. Have a good night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye.